Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, October 3rd, 2021. Halloween season. It is, yes. I noticed that uh, right across the way, our neighbor, literally on October 1, bam, there is a pumpkin. He right doesn't do a lot for the holidays. That's, that was a big sign. Yeah. It's we just... also need to order the baby's costume. Okay. Yes. We said we would do that today. Yeah. We, also, we said that Friday. Yeah. That has not happened. Nope. <laughs> we were busy today looking at the shows. I looked at Fox News Sunday and... Meet the press. I looked at This Week, Face the Nation, and State of the Union. Yeah, the shows I found today looked at several different things. A lot of it, obviously, was infrastructure and the reconciliation bill or the human infrastructure, as the White House White House likes to call it, and Pelosi's failure or choosing to delay that vote. I also saw some segments on Facebook. I also saw some segments on the recent testimony by the generals also in congress there was also something about migration and kind of haitians at the border so the kind of extra topics really ranged a wide slew of topics at least in the two shows i saw yeah in addition to those two that you were mentioning that kind of dominated things which is reconciliation and covid was the other one you said right no i didn't have much covid oh i had a lot of covid but that's interesting. I didn't have much. I don't think I had any COVID. I had tons of COVID. Should probably get tested for it. I've had so much. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that's such a lame joke. <laughs> so, okay. So let's get on to what Pandemic we're... Pandemic jokes are the worst. Let's get on to what we're really talking about here, then. Let's hear about your quality or questionable item. So I have a questionable moment. And... I feel like I'm cheating a little bit because it's about infrastructure and my segment's about infrastructure, but it's kind of a different angle. That's fine. It can be it can be whatever you want. I know. That's great. That's why I'm cheating. So. <laughs> no, it's not cheating. It's just fine. It's within the rules, within it's the It's against my own rules. Oh, because you to like to have a different topic. A different topic. Right. I see. I was frustrated when listening to the panel on Meet the Press. There was just some what came off to me like very elitist messaging around the human infrastructure bill and frustration or confusion as to why Pelosi is sticking with this fight that the progressives are demanding. Take a listen to this first clip by Peggy Noonan. She's a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. I have more thoughts. I I, kind of just want to put it out there and see what you think, Brendan. You know, Peggy, though, Susan brought up health care. And I've been thinking about health care. I remember when the deadline was the August recess. And then the deadline was the end of September. Then it was Thanksgiving. Then it was Christmas Eve. And then, you know, it was March. And we got to the point where the process so dominated that the legislation never had a chance to get sold to the American public. Yeah. Uh, At what point did the Democrats fall into that trap with the process consuming the substance? I think 
this, however long this struggle or disarray or whatever it is takes, the worse it looks. I think uh, these two bills now squished into sort of one initiative. I think with the mess around it and with the sense that the progressive caucus and the progressives are in charge, they're driving this, they're the face of this, I think in a very broadly public way in America, that does not look good, and it becomes a little bit poisonous. I mean, I think when you move on something as big as 3.5 plus 1.2 for the infrastructure, you're talking about big things. You ought to have some sort of mandate behind you. They've got a 50-50 Senate, a close house. Uh, Joe Biden was not elected in mandate territory. So I don't understand what they're doing. It seems to me that a 1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, it's popular. Pass it. Take the win. Beyond that, you have a separate bill. Tease out the most popular things. Take those wins. I don't get the maximalist attitude at all. I have a lot of... (laughs) I have a lot of reactions, but I don't want to poison your reaction, Brendan. What do you think? Well, there is a lot of poison, as she says, (laughs) related to this. Okay, so first of all, Chuck Todd had a great point in the opening. Yes. And I identified that because it was exactly my point last week. If you listen to Polylog, I was pointing out how it's kind of crazy that this bill is being covered so much based on the friction that is being caused or that we're seeing between the different negotiating parties, but that if everyone's in agreement and it passed, then... No one would be talking about it anymore, I feel like. And that's a common issue. I think what Chuck Todd doesn't necessarily acknowledge is that if it wasn't process, would you cover it? Would Meet the Press really be covering the bill if the process ran perfectly smoothly and it passed quickly and it was done? No, you'd move on to the next topic because the political media covers the friction. And that's the process. So... I actually totally disagree with Peggy Noonan's... I I guess, okay, no. I don't totally disagree. Certainly, if it gets dirty and they get down and in the mud and AOC is saying bad things about Manchin and Manchin's saying bad things about AOC and blah, 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 blah. If it becomes very personal and entrenched, then clearly that is a negative thing for Democrats, a negative thing for the agenda, a negative thing for this bill. But if the process takes time... And everyone who is on the shows talking about the bill and answering the process questions, which is really all the media seems to care about and ask about mostly, if they answer the process questions, but always note what's in the bill and why it's important, then the longer the process takes, potentially, the more the American public is exposed to what is actually in the bill. And if they can keep that discussion kind and friendly and generous to those on the other side of their negotiating table, then I think it'll work out just fine. And it might be the best, the best, actually, because otherwise, they probably wouldn't cover it. So this is I my thoughts are some of what you just described, and you kind of took it somewhere else. It's very interesting thinking about the media's appetite for process coverage or Drama, right? The drama Drama, is in the process. And so that's what they're (laughs) focusing on. I do I do think it's interesting looking at what is in the bill as kind of what it what would the coverage be like or what if that was 
what the media was motivated by. My frustration with Peggy Noonan is just say you think it's too expensive if you think it's too expensive. Just say you don't like think it's government's place to fund these social services or people should, you know, figure out their own child care and elder care or you don't believe in climate. Like just if you don't believe in the bill, like just say it like focusing on the process as a way to completely dismiss the human impact of what this bill is trying to get to, I found, I don't know, just found really elitist and really dismissive. And I just would have appreciated her taking a harder stance as to why she doesn't believe in the bill rather than saying it's not worth it, right? It just, it really, I don't know, I found it insulting to the people who are fighting for this bill, just saying your fight is not worth it. Just say you don't believe in what they're fighting for. That is more yeah. true based on what you're saying here naomi tell me you you can't hear these words exactly in the voice of joe manchin okay i feel like he's actually said these words this is peggy noonan at the end but imagine joe manchin's voice here seems to me that a 1.2 trillion infrastructure bill it's popular pass it take the win beyond that you have a separate bill tease out the most popular things take those wins because I don't get multiple... the maximalist attitude at all. Yeah. That sounds exactly like Joe Manchin. Yeah. They they have the same ghostwriter for their op-eds. <laughs> so just, just really frustrating. And later in the defense of this fighting for the reconciliation bill, the human impact or the motivation to actually change people's lives is not mentioned either. And I found it kind of disappointing that this was kind of where the defense was grounded in. Take a listen to these responses from Jake Sherman. He's one of the co-founders of a new media organization called Punchbowl News and Susan Page of USA Today. Yeah, I think, listen, it's an easy, uh, an easy battering ram to just say, you know, uh, Congress is bad and everybody will agree with Congress being bad and not being able to do this. But listen, I think that what this is what Josh Gottheimer and the moderates are saying, right? Give this guy a victory. Give Joe Biden a victory. He needs it now. His poll numbers are down. He just had a, a really difficult uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, to say the least. Give this per, this president, our president, the Democratic president, a victory. That's what the de- moderate Democrats are saying. And, and here's why they're not doing that is because they think this is the last train leaving the station. That's what right? I, I was wondering that's, here. That's yeah. the risk. For, well, this is why everything's been piled into this reconciliation bill, because there is enti- there is entirely possible that is the last chance to get a big piece of Democratic legislation through before we are completely overtaken. So this is true. Both of these things that, you know, moderates want to get out of this slump and want to just have something to celebrate. And... Not necessarily just for Joe Biden. They're not all so selfless that right. all they care about is That's giving true. Joe Biden but, a win. But Susan Page's point that this is probably the last chance to do something big before the midterms is true. Like, Congress does very little. So if they want to do something big, this is their chance. And this idea of what Peggy Noonan said earlier to do, like, multiple small pieces. Okay, I don't know what Congress you've been following. But even still, like, nobody's talking about what the infrastructure bill is trying to do. Like, no one's talking about the merits of the programs themselves, which goes back to your point, Brendan, of like, then people don't know what the programs are supposed to do. Yes. At no point are we talking about like, how bad is childcare? How bad do we want green jobs? No, like, they're not talking about the objectives. And so, yeah, people get sick of the process. So I was just kind of really frustrated that this is kind of 
The attention was so far away from the impact or the hopeful impact. Well, yeah, and it's like there's so much talk about these numbers, but they are so freaking abstract. I was reflecting on this today when, you know, you're hearing these arguments at 3.5 versus 2 versus, you know, whatever options. And it's like, okay, it looks like there's a lot of potentially positive things in this bill, or at least they have positive social goals. But I don't actually know the argument of the difference between a 3.5 and a 2.0. Like, I don't, I have no idea what the difference is, right? Like, nobody does. I mean, you pull a Democrat off the street and you ask them about this and you say, what should the Democrats do? Should they do 3.5 or 2.0? And it's like, would they be able to answer why beyond, I want it really big or I don't want it too big? Like, there's no tangible difference between the two. And yet, so much conversation has been about that stupid number yeah i'm going to talk a lot about numbers in my segment but we'll get to that in a little bit brendan did you have a quality or questionable i had a quality and the quality was margaret brennan and her focus in demanding why the hell more people aren't getting vaccinated and what the hell the people in power are doing about it she is just non-stop pushing 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 on this topic and i love it and I want to see it more. And I want I want the maximalist approach when it comes to this. <laughs> to the vaccines, me too. Yes. Let's take a listen to her speaking with Anthony Fauci asking an extremely important question. The president announced nearly a month ago that businesses need to mandate vaccines for their employees or submit them to weekly testing. We looked, it's been a month. None of this paperwork has been filed with OSHA to make that happen. Was this a a stunt? Are you seeing companies follow through even without the legal mandate filed? I think some of them are, and I think you'll be seeing a lot more once we get past these legal issues. I think what the president said about companies greater than 100 individuals is a good thing. And you're seeing also local groups, universities and businesses are doing that. But you're speaking with immediacy. But when you're speaking with immediacy, it doesn't seem reflected in the action here. Well, certainly, if you look at universities now, we've had, I I believe, uh, Margaret, if I'm not mistaken, close to a thousand or more universities are saying that if you want to be on campus with real time classes, Mm -hmm. you really have to get vaccinated or you can't come. And there are businesses that are doing that. I mean, airlines, look at airlines, the mandate of of, of the airlines where you have now 99% of certain airlines uh, employees are vaccinated. So when you do that, when you tell people that there are alternatives, that if you do not want to get vaccinated, you're not going to work or you're not going to be able to go to school. I think that the emergent nature of what we're dealing with actually does justify that. Okay, so he's talking about the justification. She wants to know, where's the paperwork? Are you getting it done? Is it really going to happen? Or was it just a media stunt? No answer. Which is a shame because it's also, like, ideally, we'd, it'd be nice to know what best practices we should be doing next. Like, what's working? And let's amplify that. Exactly. What is working? That is the question that she brought to Jim Justice Republican governor of West Virginia, and she wanted to know why his state's vaccination rate was so dismal. You were talking about your dispute of characterization of where you are with vaccinations, but 
um, you do seem to have hit uh, hit a wall with the younger people in your state. You've done all these things with uh, mascots, with your bulldog, baby dog. You've got giving away guns. You're giving away these things. Why can't you increase vaccinations? Well, now just think about it. You know, since we came out with our campaign with a little old English bulldog, a baby dog, you know, that's a, got a face that makes everybody smile and she loves everybody. You know, but with all that, we have vaccinated hundreds of thousands of more West Virginians. It's been tremendously successful. You know, all of us, all of us all across this nation hit a wall. Yeah. We need we all know that the more we get vaccinated, the more we we'll live. We all know that. Governor. But at the same time, we protect our freedoms, do we not? So good for her pushing on these different techniques that the state has used. And we heard these stories, right? All these stories about different lotteries and giving away guns, even English bulldogs that are smiling, apparently. But it's like. What actually works? Is there actually evidence that these things have changed people's behavior? I would love to see data on that. Is anyone looking at data on that? If not, why the hell not? What are we doing if we're not looking at the data on that? Justice says, yes, the smiling bulldog has made hundreds of thousands of people get vaccines. Well, if that's true, why aren't there smiling bulldogs everywhere? English bulldogs, no less. Anyway, great that she's pushing him on it, pressing him on it asking him about it. And that's not the only thing she asked about. She also asked about mandates in schools. This is one of the best exchanges I've seen from Brennan probably since she's been back. You yourself at your press conference this week encouraged parents to vaccinate their children. Um, California's governor's mandating kids 12 to 17 get a vaccine to go into the school room uh, after around January. Are you going to mandate it for school kids as well? No chance. Why? No chance. Why? These, you you uh, mandate as governor, ma uh, uh, as governor, you mandate, we looked, measles, mumps, rubella, tetanus, polio, other vaccines. Why won't you put COVID on that list? Now, Margaret, you, you know, you don't have to come in so hot. You guys asked me to come, you know. But, Margaret, the bottom line of the I'm whole thing is just this. I truly... I truly believe that the mandates only divide us and only divide us more. From the standpoint of mandates, I don't believe in imposing upon our freedoms over and over and over. And I've said that over. I don't know how many times I've got to say it. Mm -hmm. But from the standpoint of our children, I'm going, to still, I'm going to still encourage in every way because I truly believe that the more people that we get vaccinated, yeah. the less people will die. But at the same time, we've still got to stand up for who we are. For but crying out loud. God, we're Americans. I, I know this has become a big um, uh, issue for the Republican Party, which, which you are a part of, in terms of framing this as a freedom of choice. But for small children, you mandate that their parents get them those immunizations so that they are safe in the classroom. They don't have freedoms as children to choose whether or not to get polio or not. We protect them against that. Why don't you want to protect those children? By mandating well, it, Margaret, Margaret, to uh, to to think or that I don't want to protect the children is ridiculous. I mean, we all want to protect our children, but parents have decisions to make in this in this situation too. Just like the local officials have decisions to make. For crying out loud, you know that's that's who should be making these decisions is the parents. You know, and 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 well, you make those the decisions as a governor, actually. Well. 
we can go on and on about this forever, but, uh, but in this situation, we're not going to change. And, 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 and really and truly, it never has really mattered to me. You know, I, I do think this nation is so divided from the stand, standpoint of partisanship, it's unbelievable. I don't know if the governor had ever seen Face the Nation before. Why are you coming in so high, <laughs> Margaret? You invited me. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Uh, like, how hard do you think her staff is lobbying? Like, <laughs> it has to be just, like, a riot in the control room. And I love how she's like, I'm asking you to clarify. <laughs> like, I, she's like, I'm not backing off. This was a, a great exchange, extremely important. And I would have liked, you know, when he says, you know, we can go on about this, she should have said, great, let's do it. Let's continue. Explain to me why you authorize those other ones and not COVID-19. Are you going to deauthorize those? Is that your plan? Excellent, excellent work here. So a big, big quality moment. I might go so far as to call it a highlight. Oh, of course you would. All right, Naomi, what do you have as your main uh, issue you want to talk about today? So my segment is really looking at the numbers and the cost of this bill and how Democrats are talking about it, pivoting, explaining it, or publicly contextualizing this cost and and this negotiation. And that's exactly what I'm talking about as well. So we're probably going to weave in and out here. Well, mine's very dollar specific. Okay, let's get to the dollars and cents then. Yes. So I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not looking at any Republicans. Uh, In general, this is kind of like the Dems show. Um, Since the Republicans are not negotiating at all on the reconciliation bill and are not assumed to be voting on it in any way, there was an interview on Fox News Sunday with Senator Barrasso that I thought had, you know, strong questions by Chris Wallace, but for the sake of kind of Republican senator. Yeah, he's a Republican senator from Wyoming, I believe. That sounds right. And he's a doctor. He is. I thought the interview was well done, but it just didn't kind of fit with this segment and kind of how I'm filtering the, the quotes I picked. And the last thing I'll say is, I know I've said in previous weeks, you know, the focus on the numbers and rather than the programs, I I think the conversations are a little bit more targeted and the questions are probing to try to understand the kind of the values and priorities. You know, a budget is a reflection of a party's priorities. And I think it's kind of getting more to that rather than are you going to pay for 3.5 versus 1.9 versus 2.5, right? It's kind of going a little bit beyond that. So hence my focus on the numbers today. So the first clip that I wanted to share was on Meet the Press, and it was an interview with Senator Bernie Sanders. He's an independent senator from the state of Vermont. He's also chair of the Budget Committee, which is a huge role. And there's a really important question as to how the Democrats are going to bring down the cost. Is it by shortening the length of funding for all these programs or reducing the number of programs funded to begin with? I think this is a huge, huge question. And again, you see Dems are trying to go back and back and back to the program's focus. What is your preference when you're right when you when you're writing this bill? Look, I, I know what your initial preference was. You believe three point five trillion is the compromise that you started. You started at six trillion. But whatever the number ends up being agreed upon. Do you believe 
in these programs because there's a large there's a large wish list and a set of needs the country has. But you might not be able to do all of them fully funded. Do you believe in trying to do as many of them as you can? And maybe that some of them are smaller programs and you'll vote on them in a couple of years to extend the funding. Or do you think you got to do three or four things really well? Chuck, this is not a wish list. Climate change and cutting carbon emissions has everything to do with whether or not we leave this planet to future generations that is healthy and is habitable. Scientists tell us we got a few years. You want more workers out in the workforce. We need to reform child care so that a million women can come back to work and not have to pay as a family 20 or 30 percent of their income for child care. You have to have skilled workforce. We can't have a skilled workforce and do the good jobs that are out there unless we train young people. That's why we want to make community colleges tuition free. So this is not a wish list. This is what the working families of this country want and what the economy needs. The real question is, will now the Republicans, of course, are owned by the pharmaceutical industry and the fossil fuel industry. We don't expect them to do anything. But the question now is whether the Democrats can come together, and I think that we can, yeah. to finally do what working families in this country desperately want us to do. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of Sanders' messaging later, but one thing that stuck out to me here that I didn't notice earlier and I haven't seen in a lot of the other messaging is him connecting it to the economy, saying this is what the economy needs. It's not just what the American people want, it's what the economy needs. And I think that's a powerful argument that I haven't heard much about this particular reconciliation bill. And. He doesn't even go that specific. You could have a whole section on investing in green jobs. And that's kind of the area of our economy where we need workers and we need investments. Like there's so many different parts that you can kind of focus on, depending on which parts of the reconciliation bill are really important to you in terms of looking at the economic impact. Well, yeah. And that kind of raises the question of like, why haven't we seen any of Biden's cabinet secretaries on? talking about this bill in a really, really long time. It's very interesting how silent Secretary Yellen is on the Sunday news shows compared to Mnuchin, if you think about it. Mnuchin was on all the time selling the tax bill. Mm-hmm. Treasury mean, Secretary. We should Treasury say we're Secretary. talking about the Treasury Secretary. Right. And Yellen is the Treasury Secretary. Now, Mnuchin was probably one of the more competent people in Trump's cabinet who didn't go on the Sunday shows and like embarrass himself right or his boss so there's that but Yellen is in the negotiation process we just don't see her well and also Pete Buttigieg was earlier on the shows talking about it haven't seen his face selling things in a really long time and Jennifer Granholm Secretary Granholm we have not seen in a long time talking about what's in the bill and I feel like that's something that both of them kind of focused on and excelled at and weren't deep into this like negotiation speak. They were more front and center during the physical infrastructure piece was front and center. That's true. Also, Javier Becerra, Secretary of Health and Human Services, could be talking about some of the items in this bill. Particularly around elder care. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, this question was also posed to Cedric Richmond by Chuck Todd. Cedric Richmond is one of the advisors to President Biden. He's also a former congressman. In listening to his response 
immediately after Senator Sanders, I thought the White House could have done a better job. I am curious of that philosophically. Um, there is a bit of a divide. I, I heard somebody refer to it as the appetizer strategy, meaning this. Uh, you try to do a lot of programs and maybe if you can't fund them as fully as you wanted to, maybe they're shorter term. You create cliffs and you sort of see what sticks. Another philosophy says, no, do three or four programs really well. What is the philosophy of the, of the president? Well, we will consult with Congress. Congress plays a big role in how this will ultimately look. But we've been clear from the start that we wanted to t- cut taxes for over 50 million American families, that we wanted to bring down the cost of health care and that we wanted to finally address the climate change and make sure that we're uh, fighting for uh, our future. And we're going to do that by making sure that the wealthy and big corporations pay their fair share. Uh, working families has been do- have been doing it for a very long time. Now, think about this in comparison to Sanders, where he was much more focused on kind of like you mentioned, Brendan, the economic impact people needing childcare to go to work, having a skilled workforce to meet the demands of the economy that's going to take us into the 21st century. Cedric Richmond here obviously doesn't want to get too focused on the numbers, but I felt like if you're not going to focus on the numbers, you really need to sell the programs. And I don't think he does that quite enough. Well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I haven't heard this messaging used to talk about this bill saying that We wanted to cut taxes for over 50 million American families. Now, I think that's the child tax credit. Think of it as a credit, but saying that, oh, well, we're cutting taxes. That's a different way to phrase it and a different way to think about it. And I haven't seen that used. Yeah, Richmond was on both Meet the Press and Fox News Sunday. And I thought Chris Wallace did a better job or I don't know. Cedric Richmond was more tired. Like it. The, the questions seem more probing and there were bigger issues, I think, that came up. Listen to how Chris Wallace asks the same exact question to Cedric Richmond. As the president talks about bringing the price tag down by at least a trillion and a half dollars, does he want to eliminate some of the proposed new programs that were included in this measure? Or is he talking or thinking about funding all of them, but at Uh, a a reduced level and, frankly, for a shorter time period, in other words, with an expiration date, which, as you know as well as I, as a former member of Congress, uh, that that's an old budget gimmick here in Washington. I'll tell you that those decisions will be made in conjunction with members of Congress, uh, but there is unity of purpose. Everybody wants to bring down the cost of prescription drugs and health care and expand it so more people have it. We want to make sure that we do the child tax credit and that we make sure that we cut taxes for working families. Those are things that the entire Democratic caucus are united about. And so we don't look at this as a number. We look at this as what programs are we going to deliver? How do we ensure that we have child care so that parents can enter into the workforce or stay in the workforce? So for us, this is about making sure that we meet the needs and the vision of President Biden. But this is a pretty big decision because you can fund fewer new programs and keep them going for a longer time, or you can fund all of the programs in the wish list, but then you're setting dates when they go out of uh, I, I, you know, that they're no longer in effect. And that runs the risk that when they run out, let's say in 2025, that the Congress and the president at that time won't renew them. Well, that would just uh, 
make an argument whenever they expire uh, the vision of the people of this country and what they want. And we know uh, clearly that by passing the child tax credit and American Rescue Plan, we reduce child poverty in this country by 50 percent. That's why the child tax credit is the number one thing that we're trying to get accomplished now, because we see how it lifted children and families out of poverty. So a few things that are kind of interesting in this response. One, Cedric Richmond is bringing back the role and responsibility of Congress to come up with that number. He's not saying, you know, the White House has some kind of firm number that they're going to be sticking to and that what is possible to pass in Congress is going to be a, a you know significant piece to this. But I think the other thing that is telling is that it seems to me the popularity of the child care tax credit as proof that sometimes people just need to experience a benefit and then it will be easier to extend it is kind of a gamble worth taking. And I, I don't know. I wonder if that means they might go the route of funding more programs for a shorter period of time and then just seeing which one they're able to kind of extend. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I totally read that into his answer here that he's kind of leaning towards this idea of like, well, you know, that's the issue, then we'll just make an argument that it's good. And the American people will have to fight for it. It really does sound like that's the way he's leaning in the conversation, but he doesn't he's not explicit about his preference. Right? Yeah. And I can't remember who said it. But on the shows, they were talking about and I think it was on Fox News Sunday, where that's such a risk, because oftentimes that means that sometimes a program has a lot of uncertainty tied to it. There might not be the same level of funding or or implementation that could be otherwise if it's going to be funded for 10, 20 years or, or whatever. So but it's a gamble the White House might have to consider. There was an an interview with Congressman Ro Khanna. He's a member of the Democrats' progressive wing in the House. He's from California. And I thought he had a really great answer about the issue with means testing. I know last week we talked to, we didn't talk to her, but we included a clip from Pramila Jayapal and why she had a great answer to the problematic use of means testing. This was another reason that I thought was also quite effective. Let's talk about other ways that you could cut the, the expense here. One of them, Joe Manchin, actually two of them, Joe Manchin has talked about. One is means testing. Instead of giving these benefits to, to everyone, regardless of income level, say they either they phase out gets lower and eventually are cut off for people above a certain income level. There's also talk, which is not included in current ideas, for a work requirement for people getting those that child tax credit. What do you think about those as ways to target these benefits to, to people? Well, it depends what we're talking about. If we're talking about a child tax credit that's already phased out, earned income tax credit that's already phased out. But there's some things, Chris, that we have to do together as Americans. I mean, should we really have segregated classes in public school? When I went to first grade, you had blue collar kids there, you had rich kids there. So when we're talking about having every American get the chance to have preschool, which they already have in countries like France, I don't think that ought to be means tested. When we're talking about everyone should get to go to some community college because they're going to need skills for the 20 first century. Senator Manchin says we have 11 million jobs that are unfilled. How are we going to get people credentialed? I don't think that should be means tested. And in terms of uh, the, the, the senator's proposal, uh, I think we can compromise on what does require means testing and what doesn't. 
So I thought this was excellent because it's not dismissing the concept of means testing overall. It's putting it in the proper framing where the child care tax credit already is phased out at certain income levels and putting the notion that affordable pre-K is only something that certain families should be eligible for as opposed to be an experience that all families have. And I think just kind of over and over, his examples really go to understand whether or not a means test is helping you execute your goal that you want, which should be what we're hoping for is that our programs are more effective. And if it doesn't help that, then like, why are you shooting for it? Yeah, it's so interesting how different this was from the argument we heard last week from Congresswoman Pramala Jayapal, where she was saying, well, the studies show that means testing puts barriers in the way of people accessing these services, that they have to fill out forms and that it's a real problem just in getting it to the people who need it. But here is a different argument, not based on those sorts of studies or access, but really just what... Yeah, it's not about the implementation at no, all. No, it's about the result, right. you know? And I think his example here of not having what he called segregated classes with the blue-collar kids one place and the rich kids somewhere else, that's that's a very powerful image that I think is one that um, definitely paints a different picture than what we heard from Representative Jayapal. Yeah, and I, I think think more Democrats should be using this kind of messaging for sure. So the last clip uh, in my segment (laughs) is something that went terribly wrong. And it's going back to the interview with Cedric Richmond on Fox News Sunday. Now, I can't tell if it's just like he heard he misheard Chris Wallace or he misspoke and then kind of stuck with his really crappy explanation. Take a (laughs) listen. Just take a listen. And it's it's so... (laughs) It's so uncomfortable to, for me because it seems so dumb. But at the end of the day, Chris, I think what's important for people to understand is that this piece of legislation costs zero. We're going to pay for it all by uh, raising taxes on the very wealthy well, and big corporations, Mr. which Richmond, is favored I gotta, by 70 percent. I, I got to stop you there. It doesn't cost zero, whether it's three and a half trillion or two trillion it, it, or one and a half trillion, whatever. It, it costs that amount of money. Now, you can pay for it either by borrowing it or you can pay for it by raising taxes on corporations and the wealthy, but it doesn't cost zero. At the end of the day, it will cost zero because we're going to pay for it. Now, if you go back and look at the Trump tax cuts, which weren't paid for, they cost billions and billions, but we're going to pay for everything we spend here. And that is not including uh, the economic benefits and gains that we will get from it. But, and we know what we're doing. If you look at the American Rescue Plan, the economy grew faster than it's grown in the last 40 years. We created more jobs than any administration in the history of this country. The president has a vision. He knows what he's doing. He's going to deliver for the American people. And we're confident that we will bring the Democrats along with us. But uh, again, I just want to press down on this because I I can understand the argument. A lot of people say that your math is wrong and even that it won't add zero to the debt. You could make the argument if you pay for it that you add zero to the debt. But that doesn't mean that it costs zero. I mean, the fact that you're raising people's taxes is a cost. Well, we're also reducing taxes in this piece of legislation. It's 50 million Americans are going to get a tax cut in this piece of legislation. But net-net, net-net, if you pay for it, working families. But net-net, if it's a $2 trillion spending plan, net-net, it costs $2 trillion. 
Well, I'm not necessarily sure about that, uh, Chris. Oh my gosh, this is just ridiculous. He had to have misspoke in the beginning. No. And stuck with it. No, I don't think he has. I've heard this message that it basically costs zero because it's all paid for. But it's always in the context of the debt. But he's saying, like, it really does cost it's zero. Really, yeah. Like, and if you could pay off your credit card bill because you can afford it, you have the money in your bank account, that doesn't mean that all your lunches and happy hours were free. It just means you can pay for it. Like, it, it's, like, so stupid and lazy because, like, it's so easy to rip apart. <laughs> like, anybody who's, like... Every household has to, like, try to make a budget work. Like, why not just say, oh like, it, it doesn't put us in the deficit. Like, it'll, you know, we're accounting for all the cost of this bill through XYZ mechanisms or whatever. But, like, to say that it costs zero makes zero sense. And then, and then him going to the end and saying, like, well, yeah, that we are raising taxes, but we're also cutting taxes on some other Americans. It's like... But but not by the same amount. Like, and even if it was the same amount, it would still cost money. Like, oh my gosh, it. This reminds me of two things. Okay, bear with me. Number one, this Seinfeld clip. Okay? <laughs> I was thinking it was either Seinfeld or Jurassic Park, yes. and I was yes. I wasn't sure where where you're yes. going. This is the Seinfeld clip where Jerry Seinfeld. It, it, he has his stereo you know people used to have these things they were called stereos our listeners are old enough okay. that they know what a fine. stereo is fine anyway take a listen my stereo oh hey you got it hey what happened to my stereo it's all smashed up that's right now it looks like it was broken during shipping and i insured it for four hundred dollars but you were supposed to get me a refund you can't get a refund your warranty expired two years ago so we're going to make the post office pay for my new stereo now? It's a write-off for them. How is it a write-off? They just write it off. <laughs> write it off what? Jerry, all these big companies, they write off everything. You don't even know what a write-off is. <laughs> do you? No, I don't. <laughs> but they do. And they're the ones writing it off. So he's... <laughs> Richmond is like kramer in this he's like it's a write-off like come on it doesn't add up to anything the other thing this reminded me of <laughs> that's also a schitt's creek episode remember yes i know where it was totally they had to have taken it from where <laughs> david <laughs> is using all the product and he's like yes. it's a write-off you're his dad's exactly like, right sure what's what's this looks expensive uh, this is some new bedding david did didn't i just tell you to save your money uh yeah, I am testing this out for the store, so work is paying for it. Work is paying for your bedding? I was gonna leave, but now I don't want to. What is that? Is that a new lamp? Yeah, I'm thinking of bringing homeware um, into the store, so that's a write-off. That's a write-off? Yeah. Do you even know what a write-off is? Uh, yeah, it's when you buy something for your business and the government pays you back for it. Oh, and who pays for it? Nobody. You write it off. Who writes it off? I don't know. The government, the write-off people. What? Why are we having this conversation? So if I need booze to get through my day, I can just write that off? That's a stretch. But the skincare products you got this morning, those are a write-off. 
What skincare products you purchase? Skincare products? I am the face of the company. If I have acne, what does that say about the legitimacy of the store? That's not a write-off. That's not a write-off. This? Not a write-off. Oh, well, the betting's non-refundable, so... David, a write-off is a business expense used to reduce your taxable income. Okay, well then, why isn't it called a tax write-off? It is! It is! You can't just buy things for yourself and write them off! Well, then I'll return some things. There's not enough space in here for the massage chair anyway. I should get back to work, just in case any more of your packages arrive. good. That's oh, perfect. So now we're bouncing we're, through we're, comedies. Okay. Okay. Arrested Development, where George Michael is with maybe in the banana stand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and she's saying, look, oh, it costs this much money for a banana. Well, then for each amount of money we take out of the register, we'll throw away a banana. Hey, do you want to go play ski ball? Oh, boy. Well, this is the cash jar you <laughs> My dad's going to come by at the end of the weekend, and the number of bananas has to match the amount of money in here. Oh, so it all has to even out? Okay. Easy. Banana. Buck. Banana. Take a buck. Well, now that we've got an employee, we could go have dinner. We throw away a banana for every buck we take so no one finds out. Man, I think you should do that math again. What, what, why? Is it wrong? It's fine. He's an arsonist, not an embezzler. <laughs> <laughs> so now it costs the organization double. Double. <laughs> George Michael's like, no, no, I don't think it works that way. <laughs> oh my gosh. Just say that it's paid for. That is convincing enough. He could have just said it costs our deficit zero the cost to our deficit is zero that's all you had to say free 99 okay so that takes me to my segment where we're going to continue talking about this process one might call in the infrastructure negotiations the reconciliation negotiations and to begin i wanted to start with a reporter this is rachel bade of politico speaking on the panel of this week, which was very, very long, but providing some context for just exactly the level of quote-unquote disarray among the Democrats this last week, the week that we mistakenly dubbed Infrastructure Week, question mark, in our last <laughs> I know. Long episode title. Take a listen. You probably jinxed it. Each other. All right, I, Rachel, you, you were up there in the middle covering all of this, and, and Playbook put it very very provocatively that when Biden went up there on Friday, he was essentially whipping against his own bill. Well, look, those weren't my words. Yeah. I got a call on Friday night from a very senior, very upset <clears throat> Democrat who was like, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, there are a lot of Democrats on the Hill that were looking to President Biden this week for some leadership. What do you want? Do you want an infrastructure bill passed this week? Do you want to take that win? But they couldn't get clarity. How did he want them to vote? You know, Pelosi kept delaying this vote because the progressives were saying they weren't going to they weren't going to support it. And she didn't have the numbers. And they were trying to get a separate reconciliation deal. And then the president came to the Hill on Friday and he said, we're going to wait. We're going to hold off on this until we get both of these packages negotiated. And I think, you know, 
that means that there are some promises that were made to moderate Democrats about having a vote on infrastructure this week. They want to campaign on that. They want that victory. And, you know, Speaker Pelosi said she was going to give them this vote. And then President Biden came in and totally trampled it. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of people on the Hill, Democrats, who are very frustrated right now. They feel like, you know, their promises are not being kept. You know, progressives, there was a, a sort of secret agreement contract thing that was released this week. We reported on it at Politico yeah. between Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin. It was signed and everything. It, it was, was a signed. Thing, yeah. It was bizarre. And it said the top line number would be 1.5 when progressives mm -hmm. were thinking it was 3.5. And it dated back to July. I mean, there's just... There's so much uncertainty and no clear strategy, and people are privately very upset. So that's a good, albeit somewhat dire, telling of the story of what happened in the last week. But it does provide context to what's really going on here. A few things I wanted to note were, first of all, Margaret Brennan introduced her show on Face the Nation by saying, look, we asked some of those key holdouts on the reconciliation bill from both chambers to come on the show today and nobody agreed to come so the only voices i heard from on my shows of the three that i covered were the voices of progressives or people who were supportive of that 3.5 trillion dollars i think that was probably true for you as well naomi correct yeah i think so and so hearing from these progressives i feel like their talking points have gotten a little more aggressive or at least they have tried to push back on this idea that it's a fight between progressives and moderates. Take a listen to Pramila Jayapal, the head of the Progressive Caucus in the House. She is a representative from the state of Washington. It was a really extraordinary week. Uh, I have covered Washington for a long time, and this is the first time I have seen progressives have the numbers and the power and the will to use that power to hold the line on the issues that you're pushing. What do you think this week says about the progressive wing of the Democratic Party? Well, Dana, it's great to see you and great to be with you. Um, what I think is happening right now is progressives have helped push back onto the table, back onto the agenda, President Biden's agenda. I mean, this is really what happened. There was a Build Back Better agenda that the president laid out to Congress five months ago. It had infrastructure, roads and bridges, but it also had 85 percent of it was around these other important programs child care, universal child care, mm -hmm. paid family leave for 12 weeks for everybody, um, making sure we're taking on the climate crisis, expanding health care, and of course, taking on the challenge of giving a path to citizenship for immigrants. All of that ended up in something called the Build Back Better mm -hmm. Act. And all of a sudden, Dana, we thought we, we made clear three and a half months ago that the two had to move together because we don't want to pit roads and bridges against child care. And we know that the president doesn't want to do that either. But when that changed and suddenly a small group of people, 4% of the entire House Democratic uh, Caucus and the Senate Democratic Caucus said, we only want the bipartisan infrastructure bill to go. And that's after yeah. five months of negotiating. Yeah. We had to stand up and get the whole thing back together. And that's what I think has happened now. We've put the bills back together, as was the original agreement, and we are going to deliver both bills. So a few things stood out to me here in her kind of telling of the story Number one, she's saying, look, it's, this isn't progressives. This is pushing back on the table President Biden's agenda. So she's being very clear, saying this isn't a progressive agenda. You know, the, the, our caucus's agenda. This is Biden's agenda. Biden came up with this. 
And the people who are against it is, a, she says, a small group of people, just 4%. Just 4%. This reminds me, <laughs> this has me thinking of, I can't remember, oh, it was Pelosi, when George Stephanopoulos last week spoke with her and she's like, 95% of the caucus, you know, is on the same page. And is like, yes, but you need 98. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. Similarly, or I guess I should say going one step further, was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, representative from the state of New York, progressive firebrand, we might say. Here is what she said about her colleagues in the Democratic Party who are against the $3.5 trillion top-line number. And this is AOC on Face the Nation. In this clip, you will hear Margaret Brennan talking about Joe Manchin and what he is or is not against. He also has said for him, this bill will be dead on arrival if it does not include the Hyde Amendment, which Mm -hmm. would ban federal funding for abortion. Mm -hmm. So I think what we're seeing here is a dynamic where progressives are trying to skin this cat nine different ways, but moderates are not really coming to the table. And I I don't even want to call them moderates because there's a lot of moderates in the party that don't like being associated with uh, with some of this hardline tactics. It's it's a very tiny cadre of uh, of conservative Democrats. But um, but I mean, this is the issue: is that we're saying, okay, we're going down from six trillion to three trillion. Mm-hmm. Now it's one trillion, and we have some of these conservatives that say, well, our line is zero, and you're lucky if you get one. So here's AOC giving them a name. They are not moderates. They are not just 4%. They are conservative Democrats, she is now calling them. And you do hear kind of her frustration here, at least in her telling, that it feels to her and maybe other progressives that they have given, given, given a lot and are trying to find every way they can to work. And now you have people like Manchin saying, it's not only the number I have a problem with, now I want to put the Hyde Amendment in there. And that's a red line for me. And it's like, well, where does that even come from? Like, what, why? Now that's a problem for you? Like, do you really want to get to a deal or not? Or are you just coming up with new problems and new excuses for not supporting this? And I think AOC makes a really important point here that there's a lot of people who consider themselves moderate Democrats, people who came in in 2018, you know, kept their seats in 2020, who are not sticking with these hardline tactics. And so it's not like suddenly they're massive progressives. They're just willing to support President Biden's plan. Absolutely. So the next round of clips I wanted to focus on was a discussion actually kind of like looking into the messaging. And I know, Naomi, you covered quite a bit of the messaging as well. But there was something that I kept noticing about some of the messaging tactics by these guests. And and basically, I feel like I'm hearing a lot of conversation about the benefits of this bill, about what it can do, spoken kind of in the negative. There's a lot of focus on the negative. And I understand that there's a sense that these bills are solving problems for the American people, so it's worth mentioning what those problems are. But I feel like there's so much talk of the negative and not necessarily that these are positive, beneficial things that people can get excited about. Here, for example, is messaging from Bernie Sanders on this week. I'm a former mayor. I know how much we have got to address our crumbling infrastructure and create jobs there. But I also know that elderly people in this country cannot chew their food because they don't have teeth in their mouth. 
I know that the American people are sick and tired of paying 10 times more for prescription drugs than the people of Canada and in other countries. I know that there are young people out there who would love the opportunity to get a higher education but can't afford community college. We're going to make two years of community college tuition free. And I also know that the scientists are telling us that if we do not act boldly in terms of cutting carbon emissions, that the planet we're leaving our kids and grandchildren will be increasingly uninhabitable. So the things that Sanders says here, look at the way that they're spoken, right? Like, I know that there are elderly people in this country that cannot chew their food because they don't have teeth in their mouth. All these things may very well be true. You know, there is crumbling infrastructure, but there are some people who are just dealing with those issues like maybe maybe they've got a lot of potholes on their road, but they don't realize that they wouldn't describe it as crumbling. You know, like I feel like there's a lot of people who their lives don't feel as dire as Sanders is painting it here and might not feel like a, this is a necessary thing for them. But like what we've heard, what we understand is in this bill has benefits for almost all Americans, not just Americans who are living on the edge of poverty, living on the edge of prescription drugs is a problem. Like, I feel like Sanders has so much painted an apocalyptic picture of America and said that this is the solution, that if you don't feel like your life is apocalyptic, you don't feel like this solution is really relevant to you, you know? Is it something to get excited about if you feel like it's not really about you? Like maybe this is necessary and needed, but I don't know. Sanders just seems like the person who you pick him up in a limousine and he says, finally, you're here. You know how long I've been waiting here for you to come up and like, this is ridiculous. I can't believe I've been waiting here for too long. We've been waiting. I've seen person after person. You know, I'm the only major person waiting for you to pick me up. I mean, I don't know. There's Sanders is always trying to underscore the need, right? And so he kind of goes to the most extreme examples, which I think, and I can't remember how we were talking about it last week, Brendan, but we were talking about how often people think they don't qualify for certain programs or it's only assumed to be kind of a low income or I wouldn't qualify for an income-based program that they wouldn't qualify for. Yes, right. And there's a lot of our social safety net that is <laughs> tattered that, you know, working class, middle class people have to pay an exorbitant amount of money. I think it was... I, I, actually, I don't remember who, but, you know, maybe it was Sanders in one of the shows I saw that said, you know, child care, people are paying 20 to 30 percent, where the federal estimation of kind of a reasonable of their income. Yeah. Reasonable child care cost is 7 percent of your income. I had this whole kind of like series on my Instagram stories and my personal Instagram about child care. And I mentioned that stat and I had so many girlfriends say they pay between I think the cheapest I saw was 15. Most people was between like 20 and 35%. So at best, it's double what it should be at best. And that was one person. And so I think there's something to be said that they're losing the moment to show how not universal, but almost universal. Some of these benefits would be by focusing instead on the dire needs. Right. Absolutely. And it's almost like, well, then why don't we means test it? Right? Right. 
because you're saying it's really for all these people who really, really need it. So why do we have to make it universal? Here is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Face the Nation. Here are some of her arguments for the importance of the bill. And this isn't, I want to ground this conversation because this isn't a tit for tat between personality. This is not about me and Senator Manchin. Mm -hmm. This is about families in the Bronx. This is about people who need to take their bus, take a bus to drop their kid off at school, and they're not going to be able to go back to work because they don't have childcare to go back to work. But, But it is a question about the vision for the Democratic Party. So again, the argument for the bill is in the image of the before, before the bill exists, and not the after, like the benefits after the bill exists. Yeah, I mean... Like, it just makes me think of... You think of all the advertising you see on television for basically any product. You don't see car commercials. They don't show you in the car that you're in now. They show you in the car that they want to sell you, right? Apple doesn't show you like the the, the iPhone or the phone that, that you're using before you buy their phone. They show you their phone and how great it is and how great it'll be to someone's life. Like when you're selling a product, it's worth showing that product, not just the before yeah that's really different though when you're talking about like individual consumers choosing what they're going to go buy why is that different it's different than elected officials going on trying to convince their colleagues and the american public about the course of action that they're pursuing is worth it i think you're still selling a plan are you not but the end result is saying stick by me while i vote for this thing versus the end result in an Apple product is, you know, Joe Schmo goes by the iPhone 19 or whatever's out right now. What you're trying to convince people to do is different. It's different saying, stick by me while I make this choice. What do you mean by stick by me? That's what I'm not understanding. Elected officials are going on to the shows to convince their colleagues and their constituents and the American public of whether or not they're for or against a certain policy proposal. Convince them whether they're for or against your... In this example, AOC is trying to convince her constituents in the Bronx that she knows how hard it is to try to get to work and to try to get your kids to school or childcare. Like, that is is what she is trying to underscore, that she understands and motivates her support for the reconciliation bill. Not that that person suddenly needs to go and apply for a certain childcare program or that person needs to go do some like immediate course of action. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. You're, you, what you're talking, okay. You're talking about the call to action, right? Right. The call to action at the end of a t- uh, of an ad for a car is to go buy the car. And you're saying that there is no similar call to action here for people watching the screen. So therefore... It's a different argument, right? Because you don't necessarily want them to do the same thing, right? They're not going to vote on this bill. Right. They're going to vote for you. Or they're not going to go buy that program, like, immediately after she's done with her interview. Right. But you might be wanting them to write that they support this program, that they think it's valuable, right? Sure, but that's very different than suddenly, again, as an individual consumer going and purchasing whatever thing that you were just advertised. Right. I'm just talking about a best practice that we see in so many different ways when it comes to selling the values of a product, service, or idea is usually to show people enjoying and using that idea and not just complaining or having problems before they 
access that product. Okay. And I'd, I think it's worthwhile to potentially see more of those things and less of the before the product. Or current, the status quo. The status, yes. The current status quo, yes. Although you could argue that a lot of rich people don't care about the status quo of poor people. You might need to raise awareness as to what the status quo is for millions of people. Oh, well, yeah, that's that's important, yes. I'm not saying that these things are bad. I'm saying that they dominate the messaging and that in a space where even Chuck Todd is noting that like the benefits of this bill don't seem to be trickling out to people for them to understand what it is, that maybe talking directly about those benefits and not about the need might be useful. I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both. And I I think that's where I disagree with some of your arguments. It's making it seem as if we if we focus only on the the post kind of how you describe it once the this bill is in place or these benefits are in place that suddenly that will convince everybody. I think you have to kind of show the need and the potential. So here's an example, Naomi, where I think there is a Democrat who in one answer is doing exactly what you're saying, talking about the benefit, reminding people of the why, like why this is needed, and then explaining what the potential result might look like. This is Senator Dick Durbin. He is the Senate Majority Whip. This is the second highest position in Democratic leadership in the Senate. Unbelievably, he's been in that position for 16 years, and he was on State of the Union. As somebody who supports the $3.5 trillion, the, the full thing, what do you think should be done? I think the American people are looking for us to come up with effective ways to help them in their daily lives. Working families, for example, we want to get more people back to work and applying for jobs. Well, I can tell you that childcare is essential to that. The reason the women are holding back is the schools are not open fully, uh, and there's uncertainty about the pandemic, uh, and there's uncertainty about the availability of childcare. So we want a workforce that's responsive and building the economy. We've got to give mothers and fathers the confidence that the, where they're leaving their children is safe. So I don't think this is a perfect answer, but it does touch on some of those issues that we just mentioned. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Well, that's it for my segment here. We will see what ends up happening. They now have this deadline of October 31st, Halloween, and we'll see if things work out by then or how they shake out. I would be surprised since they've now extended the deadline so far to see this story dominating, at least for the next few weeks. I think it's going to cool off a little bit and then it'll probably ramp back up as we're getting closer to Halloween. I hope the coverage can be more than just the Democratic infighting, but more about the case, about the programs that are in this reconciliation bill, people who have been working in this space, you know, subject matter experts in the different industries that potentially might have more investments or have been really struggling. You know, I I, I feel like we lean on childcare a lot because we, we know that space a lot. But like, you don't hear anybody talking about the investment in building up a childcare workforce in the same way you hear about, you know, a green workforce or you don't hear about experts who are talking about elder care and the need for workers and nursing homes losing, struggling to to meet their staffing quotas. Like nobody is talking about these like very realistic, tangible examples. And I th I hope in the next few weeks we see some, some of that. Similarly, what I would love to see and we haven't seen 
is some effort, and maybe you have seen it on some of the shows that you covered, Naomi, but effort to put into context these numbers that we have been talking about for weeks. 3.5 trillion, 2 trillion, 1.5 trillion. How about someone saying, look, this is the size of the federal government. This is how big some of the major initiatives have been over the last few years. Here's how big the ACA was. Here's how big No Child Left Behind was. Here's how big the Iraq War was. Here's how long, you know, in terms of the period that it that these things were funded for, what the cost was. Like, putting into context, because we hear, and I heard all over some of these panels, like, oh, why don't the progressives just accept it? I mean, you add these things up, like we heard from Peggy Noonan, right? That ends up uh, being a lot, three point, you know, two plus 1.5 plus the previous 1.9, you know, that's a lot of money. Okay, yeah, maybe. I mean, sounds big, but like, how does that compare to some of these other things, the, the Trump tax cuts? It would be great for some of these Sunday shows to put these numbers into context and to help the audience understand what they actually stand for. Because we're not talking about, you know, thousands of dollars or even millions of dollars, which people have some context for. We don't really have a lot of context for numbers this big. Like, I remember when I was younger, I I knew that I read somewhere that the um, president's plane, Air Force One, cost something like $200 million. And whenever I heard that a movie would make $200 million, I'd be like, oh, that's like one Air Force One. You know, like I could understand what that meant. Or I learned another big number, you know, a big aircraft carrier, you know, US aircraft carrier cost something like $1 billion. So whenever I heard that number, 1 billion, you know, you hear some of these people like Bill Gates at some point was worth like $40 billion. It's like, oh, he could have 40 aircraft carriers. That's crazy because that's more than the U.S. has. But (laughs) it's like, okay, I can kind of understand what that number is. But a trillion dollars? That's a little harder to wrap your head around. But the show should help us if that's what we're talking about. Yeah, we've had very expensive bills passed that we're still paying for. Yep. And wars and other things. Well, that takes us to our dialogue challenge. I'm wondering in any of the I hope we see lists if there's a dialogue challenge in there brendan i don't know here's one uh instead of focusing on the things that you're frustrated with in your life or is not working out for you in your job or whatever situation like what would you rather it be like having a conversation either reflecting and or having a conversation as to what the future state could be that's great. It's very therapy-ish. That. Maybe a happy hour. Maybe <laughs> like a check-in with a friend. But it could also just be like a reflective exercise to yourself about, if not this, then what? Yeah. Painting that alternative, that positive alternative. Absolutely. Well, you can share your positivity with us anytime <laughs> at podcasts at polylog.com. You can also tweet at the show at polylogcast. You can tweet at me at bstidle. You can tweet at me at Soto Naomi underscore. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.